morning, everyone. Um, you know, if you ever come to my study, uh, you'll notice I don't, don't have any of my, my diplomas or anything like that hanging in my study just because, uh, you know, as a Christian, I've always been kind of raised to believe that achievements are easy. Character is what's hard. And so whenever I've got diplomas, I don't even know where they are. I think they're bookmarks in, in some book somewhere in my study. Um, but this one I'm going to hang in my, my study uh, not as an expression of achievement, but as an expression of the love my church has for me as one of their elders. So uh, I'm going to hang that bad boy up and right there by my map of Hawaii, uh, which is still on the floor, been on the floor for two years in any case, but it'll get up there. So thank you, friends. Um, let me just move this thing out of the way for a second. Now you know I'm getting serious because I've moved the pulpit, right? You, people mirror around know that. Uh, really, I just need some of the stage platform to tell this story. Um, so Wednesday morning, I was driving to my staff meeting down Stadium Boulevard. Stadium Boulevard was the, one of the main thoroughfares that cut through the city that I was pastoring in in the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri. Wonderful college town, about 100,000 people, beautiful place to, to, to be in. And as I was driving to my staff meeting, just, you know, minding my own business, just zoom right past me was this young girl, apparently probably was 16, 17-year-old high school and senior, uh, senior in high school, and she flew past me, I mean, quick. Uh, Stadium Boulevard was a rather large thoroughfare, so I was probably doing at least 45, 50 miles, and she must have been doing 80. Now, I saw, though, what she didn't see. And I was concerned because what she wasn't paying attention to because she was on the cell phone was that in front of her, stopped to turn left into uh, MLK, Martha Luther, Jing, uh, Martha Luther King Jr. Park, was a pickup truck at a dead stop. <clears throat> and she came barreling down right behind at 80 miles an hour. And I was watching all this unfold as I'm coming, coming, coming up on it. And I could tell at the last moment she realized what happened because you could see the entire weight of the car lurch forward as she just put everything she had on the brakes. And the car, as you've seen these happen, started to the weight lifted from the back to the front, started to fishtail. And the man in the pickup truck realized what was happening because then he hit the gas to try and get out of there, but not before she plowed right into the back of the pickup truck, sending him spinning around the other way. And as she impacted him, her foot came off the the brake, all the weight then shifted back this way. Her car spun furiously out of control across uncoming, uh, incoming lanes of traffic, hit the guardrail, broke through it, went, hit the embankment, and tumbled down. It was just this debris field. The car must have flipped four or five times before coming to rest on its side. Now, as this is happening, obviously, I I'm came, come up right up close. I pull over to the side of the road. Other cars that were coming from the opposite direction, they hit the brakes, and the cars behind them kind of banged into them. So they were having, their fender benders were happening up the top, not nearly as bad as what took place here. So I jumped out of the car because I inherited my dad's sense that if you see something wrong, you've got to help. What I didn't inherit was knowing what to do when I got there. So, so I got out of the car, I bolt across Stadium Boulevard, I'm seeing people get out of cars and I see people go into the pickup truck and I'm the only one that's close enough to the car, this Camry that had flipped over. So I jump over the, uh, the guardrail, slide down the embankment, and I'm running through this debris field to get to this Camry that's on its side. The cab is full of smoke and fumes. There's, there's glass, there's metal, there's flames actually coming out of the hood of the car. And as I'm running to the Camry, all I'm praying is, God, don't let me be the first one to get there. God, please don't let me be the first one to get there. I'm the first one there. 
So I get to the car, and immediately there's a ring of people behind me. And since I got there first, somehow I'm responsible for what's taking place. But they're yelling out, you got to help them. you got to help them. The car's on fire. It's going to blow up. And I'm thinking, just shut up here. This is stressful. So I do the first thing I think of. I run, I, I yell into the car, is anybody in there? I'm like, well, of course somebody's in the car. But, you know, I was thinking if they're all right. But then I heard a young girl crying out and asking for someone to help her. And I couldn't see her because there was fumes everywhere. So I got down to, the, to where the driver's seat was. And I said, sweetie, can you hear my voice? She said, yes. I said, I want you to look at your dashboard. Look at your dashboard, cover your face. Can you do that? She says, I can do that. So she did that. I ran to the back of the Camry. And this part, I've always wanted to do this. I kicked in the windshield. It was so cool, man. But there it was. It was already starting to crack. So one, doesn't break. Two, it just shatters. My foot goes to the glass. And it's so cool. You know, you guys like to break stuff. So that was cool. So I crawl into the Camry. And it seems like it's from me to that door there, right? But it's a Camry, so she's only a few feet away. But here's this young girl, 16, 17, covered in blood. She's got lacerations. She's injured. She's with her cell phone in the Kung Fu grip. She looks at me and says, I didn't have my seatbelt on, and I was on the phone. And I was like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're going to get you out. So I crawl in there, and as I'm pulling her out, I know you're not supposed to move people in an accident, but you just don't know because there's fumes, it's hard to see, it's noxious. So I'm pulling this young girl out. I get her out of the back of the window, and I'm like this. I put her over a shoulder, I stand up, and I start booking for safety. By this time, there were some medical students. The adrenaline's going, I'm feeling it, just telling the story, I'm reliving it. Uh, there were some medical students, and they had their scrubs on, and they were beckoning me to bring her over. So I'm doing the fireman haul, and I, I kind of put her down next to them, and I just collapse. She's being taken care of. Uh, responders are showing up. There's just people everywhere. And I realize, okay, i got to go to staff meetings. So I got up and left. <laughs> staff meetings are important. Sunday's always coming, so we got to get to staff meeting. So I tell the team, you know, high fives. It's pretty cool. I go home, tell my wife. She just thinks I'm a stud, you know, so it's, it's great. So Thursday comes by. I walk into the office. Ed who's the co-pastor, says, hey, that, that accident you were part of yesterday where you helped out, and front page news, check it out. So he gives me the newspaper, and immediately I get angry because I look on the front page. You know, it's a small town, so this stuff makes the news. Good Samaritans save accident victim. And I'm thinking, no, it wasn't plural. It's singular. It was good Samaritan saved accident victim. There, there was nobody in the Camry with me. There was nobody carrying this woman helping me out. It was good Samaritan. So that got me angry. Then the picture got me really angry. And I knew that there was, a, there was somebody there taking pictures. I could see him out of my peripheral vision as I reflected back on it. And I gave this guy photo op after photo op, right? I'm talking kicking through the glass with it all flying. That would have been cool. Me, fireman, running with this woman as the car's exploding. And, you know, <laughs> that didn't happen. But you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I gave you all these great shots. The photo that was on the front page was the two medical students holding the woman up doing a vision check. I was in the photo, sitting on the ground, and they had this corner of my head in the photo. I just threw that thing in the trash and walked in my office. Now, why do I share this story with you? Just there, yeah, why are you sharing this story? What does that have to do with anything? Here's why I'm sharing it. There have been very few incidences in my life 
that I've acted so heroically and bravely and selfishly and sinfully at the same time, like that. It was one of those watershed moments where the truth of Isaiah 64.6 came blasting into my mind that said, all your righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Now, don't get me wrong, that was a heroic thing to do. It was dangerous and heroic. But if I'm going to be honest, I don't have to look very far in my heart to see that even when I'm doing something heroic, I'm getting something out of this that feeds a sense of pride and selfishness. And chances are you're not much different. You know, as people, there's this constant back and forth between being virtuous and honorable, yet selfish and greedy. And if you're a Christian, it's back and forth of, of being what you know Christ can make you to be and then not being that thing. Theologian Daniel Miglior says great in his book, Faith Seeking Understanding, he writes this, we human beings are a mystery to ourselves. We are rational and irrational, civilized and savage, capable of deep friendship and murderous hostility, free and in bondage, the pinnacle of creation and its greatest danger. We are Rembrandt and Hitler, Mozart and Stalin, Antigone and Lady Macbeth, Ruth and Jezebel. Where do we go to answer this riddle of man? You see, when Freud bumped up against this, this paradox, this apparent paradox, he created this whole world of the unconscious mind where there's the, the nobler parts of the ego that's fighting a losing battle against the more aggressive, uh, sexually dressed, uh, lustfully driven desires of the id that lurk within us all. German philosopher uh, Arthur Schopenhauer in the 19th century, uh, he was generally a disheveled looking man, was spending time in a park, and he looked homeless. And one of the police officers of the park came up to him and asked him, who are you? And Schopenhauer said, would to God that I knew the answer to that question. Well, Schopenhauer was right. It is only to God and His Word that we can actually go to figure out this paradox of being human, the answer to our deepest question about why are we good and evil simultaneously. Now, we learned last week that the Bible is God's Word. We learned that there's ample evidence provided to us to have confidence that it is the Word of God, and we learned that it is the message of the gospel in His Word that we cling to. And that gospel message is one of salvation. It's, it's a rescue message, and because it's a rescue message, it's a message of hope. But before we can see the gospel as a message of hope and rescue, we have to see that we are in danger and in need of rescue. Well, see, this is where the arts and sciences agree, whether it's philosophy or theology or psychology or sociology. We all agree, even though we might disagree on the details, that this no man is this noble beast. But why? Why are we a mix of good and evil? Why do good men do evil things? Why do evil men do good things? Why do good men lie to their families? Why do they get involved in shady business deals that they shouldn't? Why do evil men, men like a Hitler or a Stalin, love their families and are kind to those who are close to them? And we can't settle for a simplistic answer like it's, it's their biology or their social setting or their family upbringing. We have to have an answer that thoroughly accounts for the genuine goodness as well as the genuine wickedness in every human heart. And this is where, by the way, Scripture gives us the upper hand. 
You see, while the hard and soft sciences like biology or sociology will point to the physical and observable because those are the only variables they have to work with, but they don't get to fully answer the question because all they have is the physical material and the things we can observe. That's where Scripture surpasses them because it's not limited to just the material. It's also encompassing the immaterial. It's not just limited to the things we observe, but it allows us to go behind and see the reality that God is mentioning. And so, Scripture provides an answer for why human beings are such an odd mix of righteousness and wickedness simultaneously. As a matter of fact, our statement of faith for our denomination says it so beautifully, I thought I'd just put it up on the screen because they, they, they word it well. They says this, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, in other words, being connected with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. It's only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Now, there's a lot there. We're not going to cover it all. So, I just want us to focus on really two points. When it says that we are made in God's image, that helps us understand why there's, there's nobility and virtue and righteousness and goodness in every human being because every human being's made in His image. But we're also sinners by nature and choice. And that's why that same individual that's so noble and virtuous can be wicked, deceitful, lying, and a schemer. Because being human means we have chosen to be sinners as well. And so, that's why or how we're going to answer the, the, the greatest question of man by looking at the source of our dignity, being in the image of God, and the source of our depravity, being sinners by nature and choice. So, we'll look at it one at a time. If you have a Bible, go to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if you need to use one of the pew Bibles, uh, this is an easy book to find. It's the first one. So, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to stay in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 for the most of our time this morning. The source of human dignity made in God's image, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. Okay, stop right there. Uh, I know it's a bit premature to stop you, but folks, what Scripture tells us right away, to be human means to be created. I know that might seem very obvious, but it's not so obvious that we don't really think about the implications of that. You and I are just created things. We are creatures. If I can be so profane, we're just meat puppets. We were created. Just like everything else in the known universe, we're creatures. We can't forget that. As a matter of fact, in Wired Magazine, uh, they ran a, an article a couple years ago talking about the value of the human body with its DNA, the bone marrow, the antibodies, and the tissues and fluids. Altogether, the human body, a single human body, is worth $45 million. That is a lot of money. Now, that estimate, of course, comes from hospitals and insurance companies projected on supply and demand. It's the value we put to these things. In the same article, they talked about what is the value of the human body when we just talk about the bare components and the elements. So, you know, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, phosphorus, magnesium. We're worth about five bucks. That's mostly in your skin, $3.05, right in the skin right there. So, ladies, if you're going to buy makeup, focus on the skin. Um, bad joke, sorry. Um, <laughs> here's my point. God's in a way incomprehensible to us, 
can put together something that's valued at basically $5 in materials, but worth $45 million in value. The cost of a combo meal or a Starbucks, you know, grande cappuccino, God makes a human being out of it. It puts things into perspective. We're just a created thing. We're creatures put together in ways we can't imagine, but in such a way that we are this amazing thing. But Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalms reminds us not to get too caught up in ourselves. Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist says this in verse 3 and 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all these things which you have set in place and created, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So the psalmist says, when I look at creation and I see everything around me, what are, what are we? Even the scientific community agrees with the psalmist at this point. Stephen Hawking says in his book, A Brief History of Time, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of 100,000 million galaxies, so it's difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence Friends, if it wasn't for what we read in God's revelation, that statement by Dr. Hawking would have to be absolutely true. This is why Scripture is so important. The first thing we've learned from Genesis 1.26, to be human is to be created. We're creatures. We were made. We can be unmade. We're just human beings. But let's continue to read what Genesis 1.26 and 27 says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth with every other creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, to be an image bearer means you were designed to represent God and make Him known and reflect His glory and His character. Ancient kings in the Near East, you might have been familiar with this, especially if you're familiar with your Bible, the book of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar raising a statue. Ancient kings would put up statues, monuments of themselves as a way of extending their authority and their sovereignty through their realm. When they would put up these images, it would be a, a kind of a placeholder of their own sovereignty and authority. So wherever the image was, the king's authority was established therewith, which is why God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Why? Because we were His image bearers, and we extend the sovereignty and authority of God wherever we go as His vice regents. That was God's plan for humanity. God has made human beings in a way, simply by being human, we make His presence known. That is the dignity of humanity, not our own inherent goodness, not our accomplishments, is that we were made in the image and likeness of Almighty God. Just by being who we are, we are capable of making God's greater goodness known and visible to others. That is our dignity. And people have always wondered through the, through the centuries, philosophers, theologians, in what way do we image God? Is it our cognitive abilities that, that we have this brilliance in our mind that the animals don't seem to have nearly in comparison? Is it our moral reasoning that we, we can establish values and, and worth of something? Is it our fa the fact that we exercise dominion? It could be all of those. The point to be taken away, though, is that every single human being 
was made by God to be an image bearer. That was our purpose, to reflect His character and establish His sovereignty and authority wherever we go. So as a result, there is this constant in relationship to dynamic between God and us. We are always before Him. We are in His world. Our thoughts, our motives, our desires, everything we say, think, feel, and do is before the Lord. Every moment, every movement, both of our outer life and our inner life. Paul says in Acts 17, 28, in Him, speaking of God, we live and move and have our being in Him. Let me throw in a side note here. Um, it's interesting, when I was doing research for my PhD, it was on uh, psychological issues, those kinds of things. What's find interesting, they didn't connect the dots, but I thought it was obvious that one kind of hallucination or fear that is shared regardless of culture, economic status, education, or, or, or gender or anything, was the feeling of being watched. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, that's because we are. We're always being watched. I found it fascinating that of the few kind of hallucinations or fears that humanity shares across the board, time as well, and culture, was that somebody's watching me. Well, as I understand Scripture, I say, well, duh, because somebody is watching you. And depending upon where you fall on the side of the cross, that either brings you great comfort, knowing that your Father is always watching you and you're never out of His gaze, Or it can bring you great fear knowing that a righteous, holy God is watching you. And everything you do, say, think, and feel, He knows. But functionally speaking, what it means to be made in His image is that everything we do is in relation to Him. We're imaging Him. We're either doing it well or poorly, but that's what we were designed to do. Let's get back to the text. And because, according to Genesis, man was fashioned after God's image everything was good. Notice the last verse in this first chapter, it ends by saying, and God saw everything that He had made, including man, and behold, it was very good. It wasn't just good, which is what God says all the prior times of creation in this chapter. This was good. This was good. Everything was very, very good. We trusted God's character. We believed His Word. We obeyed His command. We walked before Him in His world, and we loved His presence it was good. Well, what is essential to get here, very important to the biblical storyline, is that the problem with the world, the problem with the human dilemma is not a result of anything that was built into it or built into us. The problem with what's wrong in the world was not anything built into the world. Everything was good, very good. In other words, there was a humanity that would have rejoiced to see that a woman was receiving care, regardless of who got the credit for it. There was a humanity that would have loved to do the right thing for the sheer joy of doing the right thing. But according to the Bible, that humanity is lost. This means that something alien has come into the world. Something alien has come into the world that made it all go terribly sideways. And the Bible says that this is sin, a moral rebellion against God Himself. So devastating that not just humanity, but all of creation was impacted by this. If you're a note taker, write down Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Can't read that right now, but read it at home. Paul talks about how sin, because of sin, 
all humanity has just been wiped out as a result of sin. But not just humanity, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 24, that all creation as well has been devastated as a result of sin. But what this means, friends, is that sin is not essential to being a human being. That's the upside. Because sin was not built into the world, it's not essential to the world as it is. Sin can be removed, there's hope for redemption. The source of our dignity is because we were made in God's image, and sin is not essential to God's image at all. And so now we need to transition from the source of our dignity to the source of our depravity. So we need to look at that as well. For that, go back to Genesis. If you're in chapter 1, go over one page to chapter 3. We're going to see the source of human depravity, and that's fallen in sin. Let me read to you those six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? When the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Friends, I want you to notice something. And this is something that's very important because I think the enemy uses the same tactic today. I wonder how many of us in this room are falling prey to that tactic. It's the first thing that the the devil goes after. He goes after, or he goes to plant doubt in Eve's mind about God's Word. Did God really say that? Let's just be clear on this because I'm not so sure. And there's not enough manuscript evidence after all, right? Uh, Did God really say that? He goes to cause doubt in God's Word. What's the second thing that the enemy goes after? Notice in verse 4 and 5, after planting seeds of doubt in the Word of God, he plants seeds of doubt in the character of God. Oh, that's not going to happen. Here's the reason he's telling you not to do that, because you're going to be like him. He is holding out on you. That's the problem. I wonder how many of you is having your confidence in God's Word being eroded. How many of you are having your confidence in God's character eroded? You see, the enemy doesn't have to come up with new tactics. These same tactics that he used here in Genesis 3 in the beginning work to this day. If he can get us to doubt God's Word, if he can get you to doubt God's character, he's got you. And we see this right here in the very beginning of the book of of Genesis Verse 5, he says, God knows you'll be like him if you do this. Guess what? What was the problem with that argument? Eve was already like God. Eve and Adam were made like God already. They were made in his image and his likeness. They already were like God. But you see, that's how deception works. It, it plants a little bit of truth and spins it. So it sounds appealing, but it's actually destructive. And then the lure he gives to her in verse 6 
You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. What that was was a call to autonomy. You can be like God. You can call the shots. You don't have to wait for his perspective. You don't have to wait on his command. You call the shots. You determine one from the other. You don't have to image God, Eve. You can be God. And that's why he's holding out on you. And Adam and Eve and every single human being since then has been deceived and betrayed. Our statement says, they, speaking of Adam and Eve, sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. So let's focus a little bit on that portion where it says humans are by nature and by choice sinners. And notice the order because that's important, right? I think most of us get sin wrong at this point. When we think about sin, we think of it in a way that that's, while it's biblical, it's not fully fleshed out. And the problem with that is because we don't see sin for what it really is, we don't see the work of Christ as fully and powerful as it is, nor do we see the means of grace He gives to us to overcome sin as important as they are. So it's important to understand how sin works. When most people think about sin, um, they think about in terms of that familiar category that the Reformers called the high-handed sins, right? What that meant was um, anger, outbursts of anger, of lust, of greed. You, you come to a moral fork in the road, and you know this is the right thing to do. You know this is the wrong thing to do. And for whatever reason, you just choose the wrong thing. You just know you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway. That's what's called the high-handed sins. And don't get me wrong, the Bible talks about that explicitly. It talks about these are sins that we need to avoid, the Bible uses many metaphors that talk about this active nature of sin. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, three of the most common words for sin are used. So, wickedness, rebellion, sin. And, and notice, by the way, uh, each of these bring out a different nuance. The wickedness is just straight out, I'm going to do what's wrong. Rebellion is, I'm going to fight against that which is good. And sin, that word actually means to miss the mark. Then you get to the New Testament, James 2.9, he uses the word transgression. Transgression means there, there is a, a line, and I'm going to just cross that line. I know it's there, I'm going to transgress it. But then in Proverbs, we talk about just iniquities, things that are wrong. And then John 8, Jesus uses this great metaphor, and he's, it's, it's this metaphor of voluntary slavery. I know keep, if I keep doing this, it's going to become a master in my life. But you know what? I like it, I'm just going to keep doing it. I voluntarily let myself be a slave. In each of these metaphors, there's a conscious awareness. I know where the line is, and I'm crossing it. I know the good authority, and I'm rebelling against it. There's a conscious activity. That's how most people think about sin. It's that high-handed sins. And those are correct. But the Bible would tell us that that really is just the tip of the iceberg. And what do we know about icebergs? The vast majority of its, of, of its raw bulk mass and the power by which the currents then move that iceberg around are where? Below the surface that we can't even see. And the Bible uses metaphors, more often than not, that talk about sin's passive nature. So here are some metaphors, for example. In Psalm 73, it describes us as a brutish animal. In Nahum 3, it describes uh, sin like sleep. In Isaiah 29, it describes sin like, like drunkenness. You remember before you became a Christian getting drunk and you'd wake up the next morning and someone would show you a picture and you go, oh, what, I did that, you know, or, or now it's on Instagram. Um, or Isaiah 43 or Jeremiah 5, blindness and deafness. What do all those metaphors have in common, friends? Complete unawareness. 
you just you have no recall that that's what's going on. You're asleep. You don't remember what's going on around you. You're blind. You cannot see. You're deaf. You don't hear what's going around. Drunkenness. You have no ability. You're completely lights out. That's one of the most subtle but destructive aspects of sin's nature is that we're just lights out to the things of God. We're not even aware that what we're doing is dangerous and bad. We're not even aware what we're doing is in defying a holy God. We're just lights out. So John Calvin, that famous reformer, came up with a phrase called total depravity. And, and a lot of people misunderstand what that means. They think, oh, we're, not, we're not as bad as we could be every opportunity. That's clearly not the case. That's not what he meant. You see, that's a, that's a quantitative description of the human condition. That Total depravity does not mean we're always as possibly bad as we could always be. Calvin had in mind a qualitative description that there isn't a single aspect of your humanity that hasn't been impacted and deformed by sin's presence. Your intellect, your rationale, your feelings, your emotions, your, your, your psychologically, intellectually, emotionally, you've been impacted in a way you cannot begin to imagine. That's what he means, that we're totally depraved. There's not an aspect of me that has not been impacted by sin. Right? So now in our culture, though, we have a very Gnostic view. We think only our rationality has been affected by sin because you hear it every way. Just go with what you believe, right? As your heart lead you as if the heart wasn't desperately wicked. The Bible says, oh, you're really messed up. It's not just your head. It's your heart, too. That's the problem. You're totally depraved. And what's frightening, friends? Here's the frightening thing. Yeah, I'm glad. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? The frightening thing is that this is how we are from our birth. Psalm 51.5 and Romans 5 teaches us that. Right out of the gate, this is how I am. And you think, well, you know, you have these young parents that bring home these bundles of joy and there's heavenly bliss, and then they say, no, it was the fires of hell. They deceived me. They just put a pink bow on it, but I, now that I'm dealing with this child, I'm, what's wrong with this kid? Well, they're a sinner like you, you know. Friends, don't confuse innocence for inexperience. <laughs> My kids are not innocent. I know. They're just inexperienced. And there's a whole big difference way I'm going to approach them as their father if I think they're innocent or if I just realize they're just inexperienced. But within their heart, they have the same human heart that I have, right? And the Bible makes clear that we were sinful by our birth because of our union with Adam. And it's not just two actions. I, gotta under, I have to emphasize that. It's not just our actions. It's a way of being. Let's do a thought experiment. I heard it was helpful for the first hour. Let's do it this hour. In all of your conversations with friends, family, people you know, in all the ways they've come to you for advice and you try to help them out, even in your own life, think about it, you have never heard someone say, you know what I think I'm going to do today? I'm just going to fill myself with the fear of man. That's what I want to do. I just want to fear others a lot. No one's ever said, I want to be so consumed by other people's thoughts of me rather than my identity in Christ that that's what fills up my conscious thoughts when I'm around other people. Nobody ever tells you, I want to be the kind of person that when I walk into a room, I'm so anxious about what other people think of me, I socially collapse. That sounds like a good idea. Nobody says that. 
Nobody says, I want fear and anxiety to set the agenda of my life. Nobody says, I want self-consciousness or envy or lust or anxiety or pride to to dominate me and, and set the trajectory of the way I live. Nobody wants to say, I want bitterness to get into my heart so much so that I torpedo all my meaningful relationships. No child in class has ever raised their hand and said, teacher, when I grow up, I want to be a porn addict. I want to be hooked on online gambling, teacher. When I grow up, I want to be a backstabber, a betrayer, a blame shifter, a spouse beater, a betrayer. Nobody says those things. So why then is that the description of so much of the human experience? The Bible says because of this light out aspect of sin that dominates us, that moves us in directions that we are so often even unaware of. But here's the thing, friends. We are always still going to be in the image of God. That's what you were designed to be. Your designed essence was to be a reflection of something else. But because of sin, we're not reflecting the glory and the beauty of the one triune God. We are reflecting the elements of a fallen world and reaping the consequences thereof. The Greeks and Romans would say, a man or woman chooses their destiny by the gods they serve. The Bible says, you become what you worship. By our created design, we were made to be an image bearer. And instead of reflecting and bearing the image of God, we now try to reflect and bear the images of a fallen world. Guys, sin is it's crazy. Its essence is to make us think we're right, all the while leading us wrong. Sin has wrecked us, and half the time we don't even know we're broken. Sin has wrecked us, and half the time we don't know we're broken. Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25 says this. Some of you know this verse. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If that's not a commentary on on the lives I just mentioned, I don't know what is. But you know what? It's a commentary on Genesis 3, 6 more than anything. This is Genesis 3, 6. So when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and her husband also. Adam and Eve said, God, we don't don't want to image you. We want to be you. And every one of Adam and Eve's children have said the same thing down to you and I. So should we really wonder that why we're such a mystery? We are noble and virtuous, loyal and loving because we were made to be so, to be the image bearers of God. That's who He is. The echoes of Eden are still present. This is why what we would call evil people still do good because they were designed for that purpose. But we're also stubborn and sick, dying and disordered because corporately as well as individually, naturally and as well volitionally, we have chosen sin. And the Bible says as a result, we're alienated from God and under His wrath. You see, until we understand that dire news Moving on to the story of gospel salvation that Jesus saves us really doesn't mean much because what do I need saving from? Okay, I'll stop doing the bad moral things. I'll clean up my language. I'll stop losing my cool. Okay, that's the high-handed sins, but what about that 90% of the iceberg that I don't even realize is happening? 
until you realize you need rescue, a rescuer or a rescue plan seems meaningless. But once you recognize, oh man, it might be slightly different, but that's me, the message of a Savior becomes all that much more sweet. And I'm sorry to to bait the carrot here, but we're going to have to get into that next week as we talk about how the work of Christ reconciles, restores, and renews us. But right now, we understand why human beings are such virtuous and viceful people is because we're made in the image of God, but we've been fallen in sin. But the great news is we have the gospel of Jesus Christ that delivers us. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Scripture that... Lord, you don't hold back anything, but you let us know the reality of the human condition. Father, we thank you that though we are fallen in our sins, that the the image of God still exists in us, and that Christ came to fulfill that very image, and by being in relationship with Christ, we are renewed and transformed into that image as well. We thank you for the wonderful hope that we hear in the gospel that it's not about us changing our necessarily moral behavior as much as the very nature of our souls be transformed because of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it, and it's his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.